Welcome to your weekly Biker News Wrap Up. Paul Cherry out of the Montreal Gazette. He goes and says the Quebec biker war was already hatching, but it started from July 13, 1994, because that was the first murder. A guy named Pierre Dosh in his Harley shop on Barassa Boulevard, and after that, it was clear the war had begun. Norman, a rival, or a formal rival of the Hells Angels, testify in court in 1996 after becoming an informant in a murder conspiracy case. On July 13th, 1994, Three men walked into a motorcycle shop on the boulevard and killed Pierre Dos. Dos, a 34-year-old member of the Hells Angels Support Club called the Death Raiders, was working in his custom cycle shop when the three men, whose faces were hidden by masks and a motorcycle helmet, called out to him twice to make sure they had the right guy. They proceeded to pump at least 16 bullets into him. He was taken to a hospital and declared dead hours later. If you guys don't remember the Quebec biker war, I don't know where you guys were during the 90s. His murder received little media attention, but to many people involved in drug trafficking in Montreal, a very clear message had been sent. In the months leading up to his death, the Hells Angels issued an ultimatum, with very few exceptions. Anyone that dealing drugs in Montreal would have to buy from them or else. Yeah, it got pretty wicked up there. Several leaders of criminal organizations opposed to the ultimatum met weeks before this uh, murder. They decided to band together and form a group they called the Alliance. The Alliance's disdain for the Hells Angels monopoly attitude torched off a conflict that continued until 2002 and resulted in the deaths of more than 160 people, including several innocent victims. It was the deadliest biker war the biker uh, community ever seen. The Alliance acted swiftly during the summer of 94. The day after Dust was killed, someone tried to kill Norman Robitelli, a member of a Hells Angels support club, he survived the shooting and would go on to become one of the Hells Angels' most powerful members in Quebec. Quebec! <laughs> on the same day the attempt was made on Robitelli's life, the Sereti Quebec and announced, man, I can't talk uh, French, man. <laughs> they had arrested five members of the Rock Machine one of the dominant groups in the Alliance. After uncovering a plot to blow up the South Shore clubhouse of a Hells Angels support club called the Evil Ones. And remember, you might be seeing the picture now, but they weren't wearing patches back then, it was just rings. On July 15, 94, two days after Dust was killed, high-ranking members of the Hells Angels from chapters across Quebec met at a hotel, and then five days later, police managed to record video images as several Hells Angels made quick visits to the gang's bunker in Sorel. With the benefit of hindsight supplied by Sylvian, a member of the Hells Angels who became a police informant several years later. The police learned the meetings were used to inform Hells Angels across Quebec that each chapter would have to take a vote on whether or not they wanted to take part in the war. As the police recorded images of the men and 
all those others who came in and out of the bunker that day, Maurice, also known as Mom, by then a leading member of the gang's Montreal chapter, noticed he was being filmed. He paused, turned toward the camera, and smiled as he waved the officers. According to Bootlanger, by the end of August 94, members of the all four of the Hells Angels chapters established in Quebec at the time, Montreal, Quebec City, Sherbrooke, and Troyes Rivieres voted unanimously in favor of going to war. The vote spread the biker war across Quebec and meant the Hells Angels Montreal chapter had much more support than the Alliance. The end of the war came in three stages. By 1999, the Alliance was left decimated. During the summer of that year, the Rock Machine became probationary members of the Banditos a U.S.-based outlaw motorcycle gang that, like the Hells Angels, had chapters all over the world. In the months that followed, the Hells Angels approached the Quebec Banditos and offered a truce. Again, <laughs> this was everywhere. You need to learn your history on this one. The peace officer had an agenda behind it. The Hells Angels in Quebec wanted to prevent the Banditos from expanding any further in Canada, especially into Ontario. During the fall of 2000, they used the truth as an opportunity to convince several members of the probationary Banditos to defect to their side. Despite the defections, on January 6, 2001, the uh, remaining members of the Rock Machine officially joined the Banditos during a party in Kingston, Ontario. Edward Winterhalder, a Bandito at the time, later penned a book titled The Assimilation and wrote that the Banditos inherited a disorganized mess. And that is a book that's actually available. I haven't read it, but it is. On uh, March 28, 2001, the Hells Angels at the center of the war were dealt a devastating blow as arrests were made in Operation Springtime 2001. Drug trafficking and murder conspiracy charges were filed against Mom and 41 men who were part of his vast network. I believe he's still in the clink right now. Uh, the arrest created a drug trafficking void in parts of Montreal, and whatever remained of the banditos jumped in to take over. But an investigation that began in April 2000 after Mom's close friend and fellow Hells Angel Norman Biff Hamill was murdered. It developed into Operation Amigo, a probe into the entire Quebec Banditos organization. On June 5th, 22, or 2002, charges were filed against 62 people tied to the Banditos, resulting in a roundup of the gang's entire membership in Montreal. The arrest put an end to the war because... For the first time since 1994, one entire side of the conflict was behind bars. Again, you guys can read up on that. There's all kinds of stuff out there on the Quebec Biker War. Go check it out. Patriots! Kraft pledges $100,000 for families of bikers killed by Stephanie Morales. Foxborough, New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft join leather-clad bikers from across the country at a memorial for the seven motorcyclists killed in the collision with a truck last month and pledge to donate $100,000 to help the victims. That is awesome. That is awesome. Bikers from as far as Louisiana, 
and Arizona Road in for the event outside Gillette Stadium to pay their respects to the motorcyclists who were killed when a pickup truck hauling a flatbed trailer slammed into a group of riders in Randolph, New Hampshire. They were members or supporters of the Jarheads, a New England motorcycle club that includes Marines and their spouses. Kraft surprised the crowd, including the Jarheads, when he pledged to donate $100,000 to the GoFundMe page set up to assist the victims and their families. Before the memorial service, the campaign had already raised over $560,000. Kraft said if they did not reach their goal of $700,000 by the end of the day, he would match the difference. That is freaking awesome right there. That is awesome. The jarheads are what makes America the greatest, Kraft said. We are all patriots, and you are the true patriots. Manny Ribeiro, Jarhead's president and crash survivor, said the weeks since the crash had been awful. But the unwavering support has helped the group and the biker community through the tragedy. This event would not have come together without Mr. Kraft. He said over the sound of live music and roaring motorcycles. You know what? That is awesome that he got involved, man. George Lorene, another Jarheads member, said the support helps, but it doesn't stop the tears. Man, it, it, everybody, if you don't know about this accident, I don't know where you've been. Every motorcyclist here is here to support those who have died and those who are injured. And hopefully, their presence today will help everyone heal, said Lorraine, who was yards from the crash. The pickup driver, which we don't mention his name on any program, pleaded not guilty to negligent homicide and remains behind bars. Connecticut officials twice alerted Massachusetts about a drunk driving arrest against the driver. Despite the alerts, Massachusetts failed to suspend his license. If they did, this would have never freaking happened. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker said he's drafting legislation to make the state's commercial driver requirements more stringent. Again, that's why I don't see why there ain't one unique thing. The state is also bringing in an outside firm to audit the motor vehicle registry. Quote, we lost seven people because they, uh, they filed their paperwork away and didn't do their jobs. This guy should not have been driving, Lorene said. Now, we all have to live with it, he said. Oh, you dang right you gotta live with it. And I hope they sue you guys into the dark ages because this shouldn't have happened. By Jimmy Briggs. Ashboro. The jury in the Michael Isaac Russ murder trial began deliberations late Friday afternoon after hearing arguments or closing arguments from the defense and prosecution and receiving instructions by Superior Court Judge Brad Long. And this is a story that we covered extensively over on Insane Throttle. Russ Forty of 4111 Colonial Circle Trinity is charged with murdering Larry Wayne Campbell, 27, of Denon on December 22, 2017. Campbell, a father of three, was shot and killed in the parking lot outside Barbecue Joe's Country Cooking in Trinity. On Thursday, the jury listened to testimony from the defendant himself. Russ, who has worn a suit throughout the entire trial, left the courtroom Thursday prior to the arrival of the jurors and returned having changed into a red flannel shirt and blue jeans. 
the clothes he was wearing when he encountered and shot Campbell at Barbecue Joe's. What the hell are you doing? His attorney, Thomas Manning, who retrieved the clothes from the custody of the Randolph County Jail last week, confirmed that the clothes had been searched for contraband. You're explaining, like, crazy stuff to me. Manny also requested that during Russ's testimony, Russ be able to maneuver his unloaded 45 caliber pistol to demonstrate the action he took during the shooting. With this, and this is a quote, many house angels here, I've got concerns, said King Doisier, who along with Assistant District Attorney Walt Jones is prosecuting the case. With the case turned over to the defense, the number of occupants in the courtroom Thursday nearly doubled in comparison to previous days. Hmm, wonder what's going on there. Hmm, the defense agreed that Russ would use a plastic gun to illustrate his testimony instead. Before the jury entered the courtroom, Judge Long addressed the defendant. He goes on to say, quote, Mr. Russ, you've considered all of the things we've discussed yesterday, and you intend to testify. Russ confirmed that he understood and still wished to testify. Why were they trying to get him not to testify? I, <laughs> what? All right, the defense questions Rust, and through that questioning from Manning, a picture was painted of the defendant's upbringing and life before December 22, 2017. Russ's parents split up when he was a year old. He stayed with his mother in Vermont, but when his dad moved to North Carolina, he would visit him there in the summer. What? All right. Growing up, he became interested in motorcycles, which became a part of his life early on. Quote, my dad had me riding with him since I was maybe one or two. When his mother took a job out of state when Russ was a teenager, Russ lived with his aunt and uncle while finishing high school. Directly after his graduation, he joined the United States Marine Corps. Russ testified that part of the reason he joined the Marines was because he felt that he, quote, wasn't ready for college, end quote, but added that he has, quote, always been patriotic. Manning introduced a series of documents that illustrated Russ's achievements from his time in the Marines, including completion of coursework and promotions after approximately eight years of active and inactive duty, Russ was honorably discharged in 2004. He briefly lived in California before moving to North Carolina. So they're basically trying to humanize him right now. In the years that followed, Russ followed, found work through electrical jobs. He was a maintenance electrician, a platinum engineer, and instructed courses at Davidson County Community College. So this guy's had things going on before he did this dumb crap. When his first son was born, he worked in High Point as a plant engineer before taking a job at Technimark. He worked one more job before leaving in October of 2017 and started his own company, Mike Russ Engineering. Throughout his, this time, he was busy, but he still made time for motorcycles. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. You know what? These articles never get to the point. Basically what happens is he shot this kid and uh, left. 
that's what I can tell you. <laughs> you want to read the story, go over there and uh, read it over on Insane Throttle Biker News. Uh, or it's all over the internet. But uh, this is just going way on and on and on and on and on. Hi, this is James Hollywood Machapari. And if you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts. And you'll probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the Motorcycle Madhouse, the one you're listening to right now. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcast so you never miss an episode, download episodes to listen offline whenever you want and wherever you are, Easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social media platforms like Instagram. And just search for Motorcycle Madhouse on the Spotify app. Or browse podcast in the Your Library tab and follow me so you'll never miss an episode of Motorcycle Madhouse. Spotify is the world's leading music streaming platform. And now it can be your go-to podcast too. Elizabeth Brine, a prospective Canberra bikey gang member who shot up the house of a rival, has been jailed for more than four years and jail, not prison, jail by the ACT Supreme Court. They list key points to this story. Cameron Sharp fired two shots into the home and set fire to two cars in 2017. The court heard he was provoked by a Facebook post by a rival bikey. Hmm. He will be eligible for parole in March 2022. Cameron Sharp, 22, of Canberra fired two shots into the home of the Sergeant at Arms of the Nomads Club in 2017 and set two cars alight. A <laughs> he was pissed. <laughs> anyway, the court heard Sharp was a nominee for the Comancheros Motorcycle Gang and had hoped the shooting would see him patched into the club. It was also revealed in court that Sharp told another pe uh, person about the attack he was planning before he went to the house. Why would you tell anybody what you are doing? I don't know. Anyway, as well as shooting into the house, he used petrol to set two cars on fire. That's gas, guys, in the, you know, over here in the States. The attendant victim was at home with his girlfriend and father. His girlfriend told the court she continued to suffer anxiety and hypervigilance. She got scared. Quote, I am always asking why he did this to me, she said. I relived the incident on a constant basis. I guess she gave testimony in front of the court. Three days earlier, the victim a leader of the Nomads Outlaw Motorcycle Gang had updated his Facebook status with a post that targeted Sharp. It read, quote, The next time someone talks shit about me to you, I wouldn't even bother telling me because I honestly don't care. Lots of laughs, he puts. I have a better life car, family, friends, bike, and more money in a week than you'll see in a year. It's escalating on Facebook, ain't it, guys? If they had any balls, they come say it to my face, so the next time a 18-year-old <laughs> no-name camo lover from the north side with an ugly baby wants to open his mouth, tell him to come say it to my me instead of saying it to you. Well, <laughs> the court heard Sharp had gone to great lengths to plan the shooting, even asking his girlfriend to post a picture of them together on Snapchat. 
with the comment, when your boyfriend tans, you're back at 10.30. Well, that is freaking obvious, man. What are you thinking in order to provide an alibi? Prosecutor Mark Fernandez told the court Sharp also tried to hide his tracks by using the message app Weaker. I think it was supposed to say Weaky, right guys? Which deletes messages as they are read. There has been an issue with drive-by shootings in the ACT, Mr. Fernandez says. This was a bit more. Hey, he went uh, hog wild on everybody over there burning cars. This was standing in front of a property and firing at a house and then setting fire to cars. A normal domestic night turned into a significant point of distress. Yeah, I would say so. I tell the other guy to stay off of Facebook, man. They got mad over there. Sharp's lawyer, James Zab Harwell, told the court he was only 20 at the time of the offenses. Quote, it displays a low level of maturity, he said. He was trying to gain acceptance by the motorcycle club. I wonder if he got his patch. I, I, I'm just wondering, man, that's all. His attorney said the actions had been serious and thoughtless but said Sharp has now disassociated himself from the club and has accepted responsibility for the crimes. Well, I guess that answers my question. Hmm. Chief Justice Helen Murrell acknowledged the victim impact statements, and she went on to say, quote, The incident would have been terrifying, she said. She said two of the victims had been innocently caught up in gang-related retribution. Yeah, it's nasty over in Oz, man, I'm telling you. Sharp is already in jail for other offenses, including his part in a violent home invasion in which a dog's ear was shot off. Really? What did the dog do to you? That's nasty. Come on. Several months after the home invasion, the dog killed its owner, 46-year-old Tanya Klemecki, as she tried to protect a late-night visitor whom the dog had attacked. Well, you can't blame the dog. His ear was shot off. He got mad. The attack on the dog during the burglary was just one of several incidences listed in a coroner's report on Miss Klemecki's death which also noted how Miss Klemecki had been trying to protect a visitor at the time. Well, I'm sad that that happened to her. I really am. Telling the man to lock himself in the laundry for safety. Sharp's total sentence is now six years and eight months. Hmm. So what do you get for the burglary? He will not be eligible for parole until March 2022. Man, they went easy on him. They, wow. Anyway. By Chris Young. Harley Davidson's first electric motorcycle live wire. Yep, the live wire will soon be released to the public. It goes on sale in 2019 and market availability will be shared in August. So August next month, guys. In anticipation of the upcoming release, the iconic motorcycle company has announced that it will be providing two years of free charging for eco-conscious bikers. Really, you're only giving them two years after that price? Are you kidding me? Though the Livewire does have a longer range than many expected, it can travel 146 miles on a single charge being able to easily charge when the juice is running low will still be a priority for anyone thinking of buying an electric motorcycle. Yeah, this is going to be an urban type of deal in the cities and stuff like that. As uh, the further reports, Harley Davidson has run a promotion for buyers of the new bike that will help them mitigate its hefty $29,799 fee. 
Holy cow. On buying the motorbike, you will get two years of free charging for charge point stations at participating Harley dealerships. You will also receive 500 kilowatts of charging service at Electrify America stations. Yeah. Okay. Still $30,000. The live wire was uh, billed in January this year at CES 2019 in Las Vegas. It is comparatively fast for an electric motorcycle, having an acceleration of 0 to 60 in 3 seconds. Hey, that's pretty quick. It's pretty quick. Aside from being a fully electric motorcycle, the new Harley-Davidson bike project is also aiming to push the boundaries when it comes to connectivity. Yeah, that's your future right there, people. <laughs> that's the future of bikes. The motorcycle company has installed connected services enabled by an LTE-connected telematics control unit hidden under the bike seat. These, they say, will allow riders to be fully connected, providing them a better riding experience. All these gadgets, what happened to just riding? I can't even get over radios yet. The motorcycle also comes with seven different riding modes, including three you can self-program. It will have anti-lock brakes and uh, traction control system as standard as well as adjustable color touchscreen that enables smooth navigation, music, Bluetooth connectivity, and more. Holy cow, is this the start of the Tron bikes out of that movie? Holy cow. While many other EVs have a synthetic sound emitter like the Hans Zimmerman, Compose car sounds for BMW's Vision MX concept. Livewire sound is not synthetic. <laughs> the electric Carly Davidson engine will change pitch and volume according to speed. The gear set between the motor and the drive belt is designed to produce a signature Harley-Davidson sound as the live wire accelerates and gains speed. You know what, electric bikes are cool and stuff, but come on, 30 G's for all this? The sound emitted by the e-motorcycle is a mechanical signature Harley-Davidson sound that represents the smooth electric power of the live wire motorcycle Harley-Davidson said in a statement. You know what? I wonder if they're going to be over there trying to trademark the sound. <laughs> the iconic motorcycle makers no doubt hope their new promotion as well as new features such as the Harley sound will encourage die-hard Harley bikers to go electric. <laughs> I say go to the zeros, man. They got longer range. They've been around. They got proven. And they don't cost $30,000. They cost like fifteen. Uh, Shane Davison, a bandito's bikey, has been charged with a string of offenses after allegedly leading police on a dramatic chase in a stolen car at the weekend. The 28-year-old man, who police say is a member of the Bandito's OMCG, was taken into custody in Labrador on Saturday. You Aussies all in the news today, man. It's understood he tried to run from officers after the car he was driving was halted by police stingers. Hmm. During a search of the vehicle, Police also allegedly uncovered ecstasy tablets and a number of identification cards. You don't want to be doing that, man. Better put your cards away. The man has since been charged with multiple offenses, including unlawful use of a motor vehicle, evading police, possession of dangerous drugs, and driving while disqualified from having a license. He is due to appear in the Southport Magistrates Court on 15 July 2019. 
<laughs> Rock and roll, man. Well, you Aussies all in it today, man. Let me tell you. Hollywood's Motorcycle Madhouse on Spotify and iTunes Radio. Daniel Blonda of the El Paso Times. Three members of the Vagos Biker Gang were killed Sunday night in a highway shooting south of Juarez, Mexico, authorities said. Yeah, it was a pretty bad one, man. This story is pretty messed up. The shooting occurred near the sand dunes by the town of Semaluca on the Juarez, what is that, Hadamada uh, Highway, officials with the Attorney's General's office said. So this was south of the border. It wasn't on our side. The bottles were returning from the city of Peral, where a fight had taken place a day earlier among bikers attending the Ballista 2019 Festival, officials said. The Bagos Motorcycle Club is considered by U.S. law enforcement as an outlaw biker gang with chapters across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Again, I cannot deviate from the story because of fair use, so that's them saying it, not me. On Sunday night, the bikers were shot and killed when they stopped on the road after an exchange of words with an uh, unidentified persons or persons, said Jorge Nava Lopez, the state prosecutor for the Northern District of Chilliwaha. Investigators found 22 bullet casings from a 9mm firearm along the highway about 30 miles south of Juarez. Nava said in a news conference video posted by El Mexicano newspaper. So 22 bullets people were firing. The newspaper identified the bikers killed as Valentin Valdez, 60, Francisco Flores, 47, and Jorge Allen Chavez Gonzalez, 20. Hometowns were not named. 20 years old, man. That kid was young. Ugh. Investigators were interviewing a woman who was injured in the confrontation, but not by gunfire, Nava said. The investigation is trying to determine if the triple homicide is linked to the fight a day earlier. Well, it might be. It could be. You know, but down in Mexico, you never know, man. I, <laughs> yeah, it's a war zone down there. Cell phone video shared by Mexican news uh, outlets showed bikers in Denim Bagos, Mexico vests in a confrontation with two bikers in red flannel shirts in Peral. The men are separated after some pushing, shouting, and a Bagos member swinging a metal rod. One biker in red is left bleeding. The men in red are not wearing items with a visible name of a biker club. Vagos Club logo depicts Loki, the Norse god of mischief, and members often wear green. Well, look at that, Mr. Wizard. The club was formed in Southern California in 1960s. Vago can mean mischief maker, Wanderer or slacker in Spanish. <laughs> you gotta love how they report these news stories, man. Nearly two dozen bagos in California, Nevada, and Hawaii were uh, were arrested in federal racketeering organized uh, crime indictment in 2017. What's that have to do with what happened out anyway? Bagos bikers had attended. The festival celebrating the history of Mexican revolutionary Francisco Pacha or Pancho Villa with concerts, cultural events, and a motorcycle run. Villa, nicknamed the Center or the North, was shot and killed in an ambush in Peral in 1923. 
If more stuff on this story comes out, we'll let you know as it does. By Alex Napolano, New Jersey Advanced Media for NewJersey.com. A member of the Pagans Motorcycle Club who goes by the street name Hellboy was sentenced Monday to four years in prison for the brutal beating of a Hells Angel associate at a Newark gas station in 2018. So this is out of New Jersey. Robert Durand, 55, Arare, had pleaded guilty to one count of aggravated assault for beating the victim, Jeffrey Shank, with a baseball bat at Exxon Station on Elizabeth Avenue on April 24, 2018. Shank suffered multiple broken collarbones as a result of the beating, a prosecutor said. According to the criminal complaint, Shank had just left the Hells Angels clubhouse on Clinton Avenue when he stopped for gas. As Shank waited to get his gas pumped, Three men pulled up to the gas station and assaulted him. I don't know if they got this on video or not. It didn't say. Uh, Durandi, the complaint said, was driving a Ford pickup truck when he got out and hit Shank in the head with a red baseball bat. Shank was then hit by another man with a baseball bat before he was kicked and punched by a third man. The complaint said. So it was basically a three on one deal. Sur oh, it did get surveillance video from the gas station identified the license plate registered to Durandi's truck. Durandi later turned himself in to the police. So, yes, there's video, but I do not have that video of this incident. After the incident, the New Jersey State Police circulated a memo to authorities in the state warning them of a violent expansion of the Pagans Motorcycle Club into North Jersey. The memo said police should remain vigilant in areas where Pagans and Hells Angels congregate. So now they're building this scene up to a bit. Yeah, I know where they're going with the law enforcement end. In recent years, the Pagans have been absorbing members from smaller, independent biker clubs as a way to beef up their numbers, the memo stated. At the same time, members of the Pagans had started wearing motorcycle, jacket, motorcycle jackets, you gotta love every time they say that, known as their colors with the patches that say East Coast instead of a local chapter location. Pagans never did that. This is at the behest of Pagan National President Keith Conan Richter out of the Long Island uh, area. At Durandi's sentencing, Assistant Essex County Prosecutor Joseph Giordano said the four-year prison term is designed to avoid the impression there is a cost of doing business to the activity that went on in this county. Quote, While it is no crime and it is not an issue for anyone wearing a Pagan's patch or a Hell's Angels patch to ride a motorcycle through the county of Essex, he continued, It is a problem when members associated with either of those two crews bring violence into this county in association with the organizations. Given a warning right there, guys. Durandi was previously convicted in 2013 with a felony drug charge for his role in a major Pagan's Motorcycle Club bus out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York. The sweep resulted in the arrest of 19 Pagan Associates from New York and New Jersey, some of who conspired to kill members 
of the Hells Angels with grenades. Yeah, it's getting messed up. According to the indictment. So they're basically trying to scare the public now. Durandi's attorney, Noblin, or Noble, said at Monday's sentencing that Durandi has been drug-free for more than eight years and has become a, quote, good father to his fiancé's children. We all recognize that this is not a minor offense, Noble said. Mr. Durandi has accepted that responsibility. At least he didn't rat. Well, not according to this uh, article, anyway. Shank, the victim in the case, also has a pending civil lawsuit filed against the owner of the gas station, Downtown Fuel LLC, alleging they failed to provide a safe and secure premises for their Patreon. What? What do they have to do with anything? The lawsuit is seeking an unspecified amount of damages, charging that Shank, quote, sustained serious permanent and disabling injuries that have caused him great financial deter or determent and loss. Again, I don't get... What's this have to do with that? The owner of the gas station declined to comment, citing the pending litigation. When you're talking about Sue Happy, that's Sue Happy, man, because that wasn't the gas station's fault. Devin Perez, on the monitor, the Washington State Patrol is looking for a black Chevy Silverado that is accused of swerving at two motorcycles, which led to a collision. So anybody on the West Coast, if you're looking at this video right now, pay attention for this car. According to Trooper Jeff Anderson, witness reported seeing a black diesel 1988 to 1999 body style Chevy Silverado brake check in two motorcycles near milepost 117 near Lower Slope Road, and this occurred on Sunday evening. Witnesses recalled the black Chevy Silverado reportedly pulled besides the motorcycles and allegedly swerved at them causing one of the motorcycles to crash. This according to the Washington State Police. Trooper Jeff Anderson said the Silverado had a full-size cab in the back and a gray stripe or a gray and blue stripe in the back window. Two passengers were inside the vehicle. While a male was seen driving the Silverado, witnesses told troopers... The Washington State Patrol says the pickup involved fled the scene and the crash is being investigated as a road rage hit and run. Again, people, if you're in that area, look for this truck. The Silverado was last seen traveling eastbound towards uh, Wenatee. Troopers said Sunday night, troopers added there are conflicting accounts regarding the collision. The motorcyclist involved doesn't recall the Silverado swerving prior to the collision, Anderson said. Well, again, look for this truck. The unidentified woman suffered minor injuries and is expected to make a full recovery Anderson said. Hi, this is James Hollywood Machikari, host of Motorcycle Madhouse on over 20 different platforms worldwide. Insane Throttle Biker News and Motorcycle Madhouse is now opening up its platforms to advertising opportunities for businesses who would like to get in front of a worldwide audience. We now have exclusive sponsorships and supporting sponsorships available. Our team at Insane Throttle Publications will work to make sure your brand gets the notice it deserves. Most companies claim the work for companies to get the brand name out where Insane Throttles actually shows the result. Stop throwing your advertising dollars away on old media platforms and get in the new age of media. 
and reach hundreds of thousands worldwide. Our exclusive sponsorship will receive regular spots on the upcoming New American Rebel TV premiering on Roku January 1st, 2020. Give us a call at 312-899-6720 and learn how Insane Throttle can help you get your business to the next level. We have an ad package that fits everyone's budget. Brand new banger. Banger. Telling terrible stories. Creating a whole new radio experience for you. Motorcycle Madhouse with James Hollywood Machikari. Yep, yep. Good to yep. go. Management has lost control at WA's notorious Hakia Prison with Comanchero bikies treating it like a clubhouse. This, according to Prison Guard claims, a policy of housing gang members together in order to reduce disruption had emboldened some of the state's most violent criminals. According to an exclusive report, in the West Australian, those that don't know what a bikey is, that is bikers, you know, bikers here, but it's outlaw bikers there. At least seven Hakia inmates have died inside the jail this year. Three of those deaths have been classified as unnatural, including that of Elf Dion Eddie's 46, who died in hospital two weeks after being ambitiously assaulted in February. Eight prisoners have been charged over his murder. Why didn't they just say that earlier instead of unnatural? The prison guards say gang problems are so bad that 11 staff were bashed by inmates on a single day. That last... Oh, God, that was bad. Last month and that 20-year veterans of the job are crying, heads in their hands, and they had a crisis point. That's pretty bad. They warn there will only be more death and violence at the prison unless action is taken. The Department of Justice said more than 450 new prison officers were to be recruited over the next 18 months and policies were in place to ensure rival gangs were separated from each other. They should come down to the United States prison system if they think it's bad there. <laughs> Is this your grandfather's Harley Davidson by Larry Light? Has Harley Davidson met its Oldsmobile moment? The venerable motorcycle brand faces the delirious consequences of demography. This is by Forbes, by the way. On the one hand, Harley continues to be reliant on the defining mood, spirit, and discretionary spending of baby boomers. He goes on to say, Think of Marlon Brando's Outlaw Motorcycle 1953 film, The Wild Ones, Jack Nicholson, and Dennis Harper in the 69 film Easy Riders, and the Hanenly said Rolling Stones Elmont concert. Today, many baby boomers are aging out of the motorcycle lifestyle. Meanwhile, Harley Davidson is experiencing difficulty generating relevance with millennials and their younger cohort. That's because they're a bunch of mm-hmm. The situation Harley-Davidson faces is more than the classic case of filling a leaky customer bucket. How to build on the core brand values while also appealing to younger, more ecologically focused, less traditionally minded, more cash-strapped cohorts Unless the brand can bring younger customers into the franchise, it has the dismal prospect of becoming the Oldsmobile of motorcycles. It's funny, you know, just 10 years ago, they were the best. Now, all of a sudden, they are losing a lot, man. It tells you about their business model. 
Harley Davidson is an American icon. However, let's take a quick look back at how General Motors sunk the Oldsmobile brand. How oh, you guys like the Oldsmobile, man? I thought they were cool. Olds was the 1897 creation of Ransom E. Olds. In 1908, Mr. Olds sold the brand to General Motors, as difficult as this may be to imagine today in a world of Prius, Lexus, Leaf, and Tesla. In the 1970s and 80s, Olds was the third most popular car brand, selling over a million vehicles a year. Well, maybe General Motors should make a better car. Uh, anyway, <laughs> in a wistfully scenario comic 2009 article, McClellan pointed out how culturally significant Oldsmobile was in America. Quote, the average Olds driver was a 62-year-old who wanted to advertise that he's achieved a respectable, but not standardized <laughs> between Cadillacs and a standardized type of living. Cutlasses and 98s were seen in the parking lots of every public golf course, Methodist church, and state college football games in America. <laughs> McClelland reminded us that TV detective Joe Mannix, 67 through 75, starring Mike Connors, drove a custom Tornado and the rock band Rio Speedwagon, whose heyday was in 67 to 80, took its name from the Rio Speedwagon, a light delivery truck, the Ransom E, Old's ancestor of the modern pickup truck. I don't care, F-150s, they rule. Sorry, guys. As younger drivers expressed little interest in purchasing Old's vehicles, General Motors recognized that it needed to update the Oldsmobile's image. The Washington Post said in 1993, Oldsmobile's full-size 98s and mid-size 88s were, quote, primarily bought by midlifers and senior citizens and hold no promise for attracting a younger crowd. But you know what? You put on some rims on them, oh, they look good. Oldsmobile's answer for rejuvenating its brand identity was the 88 advertising slogan, the now classic, this is not your father's Oldsmobile. Even though it hung around for another 12 years, the consensus was that the slogan was the beginning of the end for Oldsmobile. The quote, grandfather slogan, accomplished two things. The first one, among younger car buyers, the slogan reinforced why they did not want to own an Oldsmobile. And two, it embarrassed and alienated the current loyal or owner base. Yeah, I bet that uh, made them mad. <laughs> so, double jeopardy, alienate the core while also turning off new customers, Oldsmobile could have been saved. The brand had a great heritage of engineering innovation. For example, the Oldsmobile V8 engine uh, proved so popular it came to be known as the Rocket. The brand had some exciting products in the pipeline. But the brand bronzed its old-fashioned image with mistaking mismarketing before the new vehicles hit the showroom floor. So you can kind of see why Harley-Davidson is trying to get away from us core branders. Brands can be revitalized. Harley-Davidson has several opportunities for brand revitalization. Again, everybody, this is coming from Ford's magazine, so take it as it will. One, the brand has many core elements that can be contemporized. In core spirit, it's compelling regardless of age cohort. Harley-Davidson is a mindset, a set of attitudes, not an age group.
Basic values are enduring and cross-age groups. Baby boomers will feel regenerated. Yeah, that's why you see a lot of these mid-guys in their 50s and 60s getting their first ones. And younger riders will connect. Pirate, the professional service accounting company, recently published survey results that indicate the degree to which there is cross-generational crossover. Yeah, I'm being, uh, you know, making fun of it. Anyway, <laughs> who cares about generational? Uh, two, for many uh, younger consumers, the big brawling Harley-Davidson bike is less appealing and not affordable. Well, they got that right, not affordable. Can't even get mid-age or mid -age guys get it. The brand is nearing two dual-purpose models, highway and off-road capable, and there are nine more sporty models in the pipeline. This is the time to revitalize the brand to make it contemporary. The brand's enduring values during the Nissan 1999-2002 turnaround, Carlos Gons used the revamped, re-image, redesign 280Z to demonstrate to Nissan buyers that the brand is in a revitalization mode. That car stunk. Are you kidding me? Three. Harley-Davidson can redefine what Harley-Davidson writing is all about. In the 1960s, the allure of freedom from conventions was a driving force. Cars were for parents. VW minivans and bikes were expressions of the age of Aquarius. Oh my God, the guy riding this thing. Uh, today, that the freedom can be channeled into riding as a sport, challenging, entertaining, pastime, and competitiveness. You know, he actually got that right there, man. Get that uh, flat track going good. A lot of younger people have been raised on extreme sporting events, some of which are off-road motorcycling, competitive events, instead of just relying on the iconic, traditional Harley rallies. Oh my, now they're going after rallies, guys. Also create Harley active events. Again, flat tracking. Best way to do it. Brands are not monolithic, never changing monuments. Brands are dynamic promises of relevant and trustworthy brand experiences. These are the guys that are actually running Harley into the ground, guys like this talking. And there is nothing quite as <laughs> as riding on a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. Make the American classic appeal to all classes of Americans. Again, you wonder why Harley's in trouble? It's guys like that that's uh, running the company. Five mil Bill Mista in New Berlin. Irontown Harley-Davidson in New Berlin shut down its day-to-day -day operations at least temporary. This is the one that uh, is also with Border Tracker in Janesville. According to a post on the business's Facebook page on Tuesday, July 16th, the closure was met with surprise and concern for the employees of the former Hales Harley-Davidson dealership. Notice a lot of dealerships are closing lately and occurred amid an ongoing lawsuit against the owners by Harley-Davidson seeking millions of dollars in unpaid debts. Hmm. Same thing again happened to Border Tracker. I'm really upset, said Teresa Davis of Milwaukee. Quote, I was here last week, said Craig Basil of West Alice. I just couldn't believe it. It's my hope that this will be a short-term thing as they get things sorted out, said Carl Sampala of Greenfield. There was a tent in the parking lot, but no bike night on Tuesday night. God forbid no bike night at the dealership. Where do you go? Maybe try riding. So I rode up here because we were going to come up here on bike night, but I guess we're not, said Basil. You think? Uh, yeah, closed door means no bike night, people. 
to come to a Harley dealership and it's not open on a Tuesday at 3 o'clock is unheard of. What happened that you're not open, said Davis. You know what? It is funny how bikers hang around these dealerships. The message posted on social media was also posted on the door. Quote, it was a bit of a surprise. I had dropped the bike off about quarter to seven last night for normal maintenances, said Sam Pella. You know what? That is the worst feeling in the world I couldn't imagine. Hours later, Sam Pella said he got an email saying the dealership was going to be closed, making for a sleepless night. Yeah, it's called at that time, get a brick, throw it through the window, and get your bike. Fortunately, I was out on some business today, and when I got back to my phone, there was a voicemail waiting for me. Basically said, come and get your bike, said Sam Pella. <laughs> They're uh, anxious to get that money, aren't they? Ladies and gentlemen, here it is. The most listened to radio show on the planet. Even the other stations are tuned in too. Motorcycle Madhouse on Spotify and iTunes Radio. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Motorcycle Madhouse. Don't forget to go over to New Insane Throttle's new YouTube channel and also get your daily dose of biker news every morning at HarleyLiberty.com. If you haven't done so already, go like the new Motorcycle Madhouse Facebook page. And until next week, I'm James Hollywood Machikari. And remember, keep that throttle cracked wide open.